Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. In medical news this week, we learned another update on the ongoing outbreak of vaping-related illnesses. Last month, a 17-year-old boy whose lungs were damaged so badly by vaping received a double lung transplant. The patient's lungs were scarred, stiffened, and had various spots of dead tissue. For more on this double lung transplant, we spoke to Denise Grady. She's a reporter at the New York Times. This all began when he was 16 is when he got sick and he passed his 17th birthday in the middle of it. So this is a young teenage boy. Nobody knows what he was vaping. At least the doctors didn't disclose it. But he got sick in September and wound up in the hospital. And the first thought was that he looked like he had pneumonia. And he got sicker and sicker and was put on a ventilator to help him breathe. And that was not working well enough. He was transferred to another hospital where they took a pretty desperate measure of hooking him up to another machine that bypasses your lungs and puts the oxygen right into your bloodstream. And they use that for people with lung failure. And they tried that for a while. And even that wasn't working. Even with that, they could not get enough oxygen into him to keep him alive. And meanwhile, he just was not improving. If anything, he was getting worse. So then he was transferred again to Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit, which has the ability to do a lung transplant. And they realized that he didn't have very much time left, and they put him on the list for a transplant. And this is something that's not decided. Whether you are qualified or whether you get to the top of the list isn't up to the hospital. It's a national organization that sets criteria for this. And because he was so young and he had so little time left and his lungs were just pretty much destroyed, he went to the top of the list and somebody else's bad luck was his good fortune and he got a pair of lungs from a deceased donor. And he had that surgery on October 15th. They didn't really start talking about it until this week and apparently he's doing well. Researchers have described the lung damage from this vaping illnesses that they have seen as like chemical burns similar to people who have inhaled toxic fumes from like industrial accidents, things like that. What did this patient's lungs look like? The doctor said he'd never seen anything like it. He said there were dead spots in the lungs and they were scarred and stiff. It was hard to even get them out of his chest. And the doctor said, this is an evil that I've never seen in 20 years of doing lung transplants. He said he'd never seen anything like it. We don't know exactly the name of this patient, but the family did want to get the word out about this, obviously, now that he's doing a little bit better, but they wanted to get the word out as a cautionary tale to anybody who is vaping or even the people that might be going through this right now that are ill as well, just that this is bad news. They said that they hoped that, you know, if it would save somebody else, it would be worth it. And they made a point of saying that before this happened, he was a perfectly healthy kid. They said he was an athlete and doing well in school, had lots of friends. And then he gets sick. And the next thing you know, he wakes up in the hospital with a tube down his throat and a new set of lungs in his chest. You did mention that the doctors didn't say 
whether he was using regular nicotine vaping products or THC vaping products. From what we know about this illness so far, the majority of people that have come down with this illness are related to THC vaping products. That's why they use that vitamin E acetate to kind of thicken up the agent so that they can make more profits. So that's kind of an important distinction to know exactly what this patient was using because we're trying to figure out where the source of all this illness is coming from. I guess the family did not want that talked about. Either they didn't want to talk about it, maybe they weren't even sure themselves. I don't know, but the question came up with the doctors when they were talking to reporters about it, and they just said, we can't really go there. We can't talk about that. And the CDC says that most of the cases really are from people who were vaping THC, but they're not ready to rule out nicotine yet because they said that there are some cases where people swear that they have vaped only nicotine. And, you know, you might think maybe they're not telling the truth, but apparently in some of these cases, the state health departments have investigated them and they say that some of these stories really do stand up and they are credible. And so it doesn't seem like any of these vaping products are off the hook yet. Denise Grady, reporter at the New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Still on the medical front, we learned that Google had partnered with one of the largest healthcare systems in the U.S. on an initiative called Project Nightingale. This project was to collect detailed personal health information of millions of people in 21 states. The problem is that neither Google nor the healthcare partner notified patients or doctors that they were collecting this data. For more on this story that has now triggered a federal inquiry, we spoke to Sarah Needleman, a reporter for the Wall Street Journal who first broke this story. This initiative is basically a partnership between Google and Ascension. And under this partnership, uh, Ascension, without notifying patients or doctors, as you said, has begun sharing with Google personally identifiable information on millions of patients. So we're talking about names and birth dates, lab tests doctor diagnoses and other clinical records. And the idea is for Google to move that data into its cloud computing system and be able to use technology to make suggestions on things that patients may or may not want to do. For example, artificial intelligence would maybe suggest a certain treatment plan, or it may automatically predict and map the outcome of certain procedures or medications for a particular patient. Part of the problem is that Google wants to help create these next systems that the hospitals and everybody can use. You know, obviously they're doing this with Ascension right now, but the thought process is that they could sell this to other hospitals and other healthcare systems. And you need all this information to train the AIs to create the system. And while a lot of people would say, hey, this would be a great thing when you're getting the data of a bunch of people without their permission, that is the big problem. But Google themselves say that this is all perfectly legal. It is under HIPAA, which it refers to the Federal Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996. That generally allows hospitals to share data with business partners without telling patients, as long as the information is used to help the uh, covered entity carry out its healthcare functions. So right now, privacy experts are saying that it, it does appear permissible under federal law, but nevertheless, the government is looking into just exactly how this data will be handled, who's going to be handling it, what are the potential uses for it. And Google has said they do not plan to use it to sell advertisements. But there are many other potential uses that are being questioned and scrutinized right now because it's unclear. There could be research possibilities. And that's something Google has not commented on. The Wall Street Journal first reported this on Monday. 
And since then, everybody was up in arms. There was lawmakers that were not happy with this. The optics of this are really bad because patients and doctors themselves really didn't know that this information was being shared. So now there is a federal inquiry. Lawmakers want to know more about what's going on here because they're scared that there's not being enough done to adequately protect patient data in this. Bear in mind, the HIPAA law was passed decades ago, well before we were thinking in terms of this kind of technology. Just it's not something we were able to fathom at the time. And so now the question is, you know, just because it is legal to not disclose this information, maybe that no longer makes sense. Maybe now in 2019, that law no longer applies, or perhaps it's because of the scope of this. We're talking about such a large amount of data that lawmakers didn't foresee back in 1996. And so just in, in, in an era now when we're so concerned about privacy and we see how technology captures you know, so much personal data and, and how it's out there and, and the risks that come with that data being exposed to potential bad actors, you have to stop for a moment and pause and think and say, well, whether or not it was legal doesn't necessarily mean it's the best thing for everybody involved. So there could be potential positive outcomes. Some doctors say that they are looking forward to the opportunity for records to be uh, more easily attainable, perhaps across state lines, more quicker. When someone's life is on the line and there's a very short period of time, they be able to access information quickly is important. So there are many different moving parts here to, to take into consideration. People always think, oh, this is always is a big business dealing. And while experts do say that Google could get tens of millions of dollars if they repeat this work that they're doing for other healthcare clients and whatnot, Google, for mm-hmm. their part, said that they're not making any money on this right now or not. they're not charging Ascension anything for this. Right now, Google is not being paid for the work, but Ascension is incurring costs as it trains its staff to uh, use Google's technology. So they did not disclose the financials of the deal, but you have to imagine that at some point there will be financial benefits to be reaped by any company that performs a service, especially of this size. And like you did point out, once this technology is gone through the test and, and it's been established, it is something that could potentially be repeatable with other healthcare concerns besides Ascension. And then that's where um, Google could potentially make lots of money down the road. So this is a, a business with shareholders and that's how the world works. So certainly we can expect to see some sort of monetary outcome on behalf of Google for this. Sarah Needleman, tech reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Finally for this week, a million Americans are arrested every year for drunken driving. And in many cases, the breathalyzer test is what seals the deal. But a recent New York Times investigation has found that these devices can give skewed results because of human error or because the devices haven't been properly calibrated. There have been so many errors that judges in Massachusetts and New Jersey have thrown out more than 30,000 breath tests in the past 12 months alone. For more on why we can't always trust the breathalyzer test, we spoke to Stacey Cowley. She's a reporter for The New York Times. In two states in particular, in New Jersey and Massachusetts, we've seen tens of thousands of breath tests in each of those states be invalidated because of legal rulings and challenges to them. So we started taking a closer look about what exactly is going on. And what we found in those two states in particular is that a lot of times when you see large numbers of tests get thrown out, it's human error. Someone somewhere along the line made a mistake in how the machines were set up and used. And when that happens, the results can be pretty catastrophic. Massachusetts just had to throw out every single breath test done in the state for eight years which is a pretty sweeping result. Tell us a little bit of background on how these breathalyzers work. So the basic way the breathalyzer works, it's based on a scientific principle known as Henry's Law. And basically, there was this realization that you could use breath to make an approximation of someone's blood alcohol level. And when it's done correctly, it works pretty well. The scientific principle is correct 
judges and scientists have taken a close look at this for decades, and scientifically it holds up. The challenge, of course, though, is that a breath test machine is a piece of technology, and no computer is perfect. There can be mistakes. So for years, lawyers have been trying to take a closer look and say, okay, how do these machines that police officers use actually work? And part of the challenge around that has been that the manufacturers treat this as proprietary. They don't want people to take a closer look at this. So it typically requires a whole lot of litigation to even get a hold of one of these machines if you're not a police officer and a whole lot of litigation to get a closer look at the software. And in general, when that's happened and there's been large court cases over these things, generally what experts find is they find a few errors. They generally don't find catastrophic errors. Pretty much every time this has gone to a state Supreme Court, the Supreme Court has decided, hey, the machines are generally reliable. But in every case, there's been some little errors that come to light. Where things more often go wrong, though, is that the machines are scientific instruments. They have to be maintained correctly, programmed correctly, used correctly. And quite often, when lawyers look under the hood, they find that something's gone wrong in that process. Part of the other thing is that there's about two dozen companies making these testing machines. So standards and regulations are different from obviously state to state and company to company with these things and calibrations are different for each machine. So it can really kind of become a big web of confusion there. Some of these testing machines go for about $10,000 or more. Big contracts with state police crime labs are, could be worth millions of dollars. And one of the biggest questions that kind of arises from all of this is, so a lot of these machines can be miscalibrated. So there's a lot of miss, uh, you know, a lot of people who were um, uh, charged with drunken driving that maybe shouldn't have. And in the case of, as you said, Massachusetts and New Jersey, where some of these cases are being thrown out because of these false readings, there could be a bunch of people that are getting off the hook that are actually dangerous people who are repeat offenders of drunk driving. One of the real challenges when one of these things blows up in a big way, like happened in Massachusetts, is you really end up with a double-edged sword there. And that in Massachusetts, because these tests have thrown out, they've got 28,000 people who were convicted based on tests that the court now acknowledges are unreliable. And that sort of leaves you with people trapped on both sides. You've got potentially innocent drivers who are now facing punishment for things that they may not have done. But you also have a huge number of drivers in that 28,000 convictions who probably were drunk, who probably did do it, and are now potentially going to be able to have their cases reopened and potentially over turned because of this problem with the technology. The article that you wrote about this is very extensive, very good. One example that you gave with kind of the difficulties of all this was in the state of Washington, and they chose to use this product. It's called the Alcatest 9510. And this goes through with how things are calibrated. And I guess there, they didn't even bother to have anybody evaluate the software. One of the state toxicologists in some of these documents that you were able to find, they said, well, we just threw caution to the wind, proceeded without paying up front for an independent evaluation and just kind of see what happens with it. I think that was one of the things that we were a little surprised by in doing our investigation is we kept coming across what seemed like lax oversight of these things. And the reality is, you know, states are resource constrained. They're strapped. They don't have endless time and money and expertise to throw at these problems. So we found that in quite a lot of them, there's this sort of instinct to just trust that the machine's going to work, to not want to look too closely, because that's an expensive and hard thing to do. So yeah, Washington State was one example where they chose not to spend what would have been about $80,000 to hire independent experts to independently review the device's software. And what happened after that? Because a local judge did grant a request from a defense lawyer to review some of the software, and the people that ended up making a report about this, they wrote a nine-page draft report called Defective Design Equals reasonable doubt. And they kind of took this thing apart and realized that there was problems from the beginning. 
they did what they started down an evaluation. They took a very close look at the software source code and compiled a report saying, hey, here's some potential problems with this. And then they made a legal mistake. They went and took that report to a convention of defense lawyers. And the company came back to them and said, hey, we only gave you this software under a protective order, under a seal. You aren't supposed to use for any commercial purposes what you've learned. And we think going and talking to defense lawyers and trying to market yourself as potentially an expert witness for hire, hey, that's a commercial purpose. You can't do that. And facing the prospect of getting basically sued into oblivion by a company that had a lot more money than they did, they basically retracted the report and shut down their company. But that was a good example of how there is a lot of secrecy around these things and efforts to get a closer look at exactly what the machines are doing are really complicated and are often heavily opposed by the companies. In Colorado, one of the people that were running the labs and running these machines were feeding false information into these I think this was the one that was giving false readings or something like that. This caused this whole thing for Colorado to have to go back to the drawing board with them. One of the challenges with these things is that they almost never come to light unless you have a motivated whistleblower or a lot of very expensive litigation. So two of the examples we cite in our article, in Colorado, there was a lab employee who said that, hey, the process by which we calibrated and rolled out our fleet of new machines when we switched devices was really chaotic and potentially really problematic. He said that a bunch of people calibrated machines using his signature that he never touched. The lab director's signature was appearing on certifications that she didn't know her signature was appearing on. So there was a lot of issues there. And then Washington, D.C. was a similar situation where they brought in an outside contractor who tested their devices and found that every machine was giving results 20 to 40 percent too high. That's something that probably would never have come to light had he not really prominently gone around internally and said, oh, my God, this is a huge problem. You have to announce this and disclose this. I think that's one of the concerns we hear about these things is that it really relies on someone internally speaking up and doing the right thing or you just never find out about it. So what do we do with all this information now for anybody who has gone through this and maybe has gotten caught drunk driving and the breathalyzer nailed them? They're probably really pissed off hearing some of this stuff for other people who are just kind of worried in general that they might get caught up. They might be cautious of this. But as you said in the article, between two states, Massachusetts and New Jersey alone, at least 42,000 convictions are at risk because of some of this stuff, of some of these faulty readings or miscalibrations, things like that. So what do we make of all this? Part of why this was a challenging story for us is that there's no easy answers here. This is a really complicated technology. The more we delved into it, the more we're like, wow, there's a whole bunch of very specialized issues that this brings up legally, forensically, scientifically. So the takeaways we kind of came away from it were, first of all, the easiest way to avoid getting caught for drunk driving, don't get in the car and drive. 100%. That's the simplest thing. If you do have a breath test that you think, hey, something could be off here, Consulting a local lawyer is definitely the best way to go. I mean, this is something that requires a lot of specialized legal and scientific knowledge, and really finding a local expert who has those skills is very useful. We're also hoping that the article will potentially draw judges and policymakers and lawmakers to take a closer look at the oversight, because really, to deal with this problem systemically, these sorts of things don't start to get fixed without closer oversight. And that's what I think we want to see happen here, is these are sensitive forensic instruments. They need to be maintained correctly. Labs need to have the resources in terms of finances and manpower to be able to do that. So we really hope that policymakers and lawmakers will keep that in mind. Stacy Cowley, reporter for The New York Times, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for your interest. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. <laughs>